And uh, in the past, I always thought that the word there was error. But the word is err, E-R-R, and it means to wander or to move away from it and uh, move away from the truth, which is the word of God. So I want uh, to grow in what God has for us. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, can anybody remember what the overarching theme of the book of James is? The overarching theme of the book of James. It's about becoming spiritually mature. And uh, more specifically, it's about the marks of spiritual maturity. How you can tell that someone is growing in spiritual maturity. And uh, in chapter 1, we looked at the fact that uh, those that are spiritually mature are patient in testing. Just a second here. And you will have to practice being patient as I... Amen. Chapter 1, we talked about being patient in testing. So the mark of someone who is spiritually mature in chapter 1 was that during their time of testing, they're patient. Another mark of somebody who is becoming spiritually mature is that they practice the truth rather than just knowing the truth. That's what James chapter 2 teaches, that a spiritually mature person, it's not about how much you know or your head knowledge, but putting it into practice. Chapter 3 talks about the marks of spiritual maturity as a person who has power over his or her tongue. Then in chapter 4, a mark of spiritual maturity that we looked at last week is one who is spiritually mature is a peacemaker instead of a troublemaker. And we're looking in chapter 5 this week, the last chapter of the book of James. And uh, what we are learning tonight is that a mature believer is prayerful in times of trouble. That when trouble comes, times of trouble come, they are a person of prayer. Now, if you are in James chapter 5, you may notice that there are kind of three, probably in your Bible, three divisions there of James chapter 5. In my Bible, verse number 1, right before it, it says, rich oppressors rebuked. And then before verse 7, in my Bible, it says the examples of suffering and patience. And then beginning with uh, verse 13, it's about prayer avails much. Anybody else's Bible say something similar to that in your, in, in your Bible? Just kind of little headers that kind of explain uh, what is uh, coming next. So these three sections we're going to focus on tonight. Uh, first of all, about riches and money, very briefly how it's described here. And uh, verses 7 through 12, the power of patience through suffering. And then verse 13 through 20 is about how prayer makes a difference. And uh, uh, when we pray in our our trials, it really makes a difference. So we're going to start reading verses 1 through 6, and then we'll allow you to be seated. And uh, we'll begin our study together. Verse number 1 says, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as if it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together in the last days. Behold, uh, for the last days, behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. 
So it says there's a voice. You've cheated your workers, and this voice is crying out. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Verse 6, ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Lord Jesus, we pray, dear God, that as we study your word and and, uh, seek to understand and discern the deeper meanings of what you're speaking to us about, Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts, that it would not just be a lesson, and it would not just be trivial or academic, but God, that you would speak to our hearts, we pray, Lord, and let us put into practice and apply the truth of your word, we pray in the name of Jesus, uh, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, and you may be seated. Now, as you're reading these first six verses, if you read it real, real quickly, it almost looks as if God is not happy with rich people and uh, maybe that it's a sin to be rich. But as you look at this uh, in the context of the fuller message of Scripture, you realize that in the Bible there were godly men who were very, very wealthy. Men like Abraham, who with his wealth was able to bless people and bless the world. So James is not here condemning the idea of people being wealthy or people being rich. But he's speaking here about the selfishness of certain rich people. We'll talk specifically about what the problem is here that James has with certain rich people. But why is he telling them to weep and howl? In verse 1, it says, Go now, ye rich man, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Well, here's a few reasons why... The Lord is concerned with certain rich people. First of all, he has a problem here with how they got their riches. Notice that, uh, that they got their riches the wrong way. The Bible does give instructions for proper acquisition of wealth. So it's not a sin to earn money. and It's not a sin to have resources and to own property. Jesus showed, even in his teaching, respect for private property and for gain that was gained in the right way. But what is condemned is riches gained illegally and selfishness with riches. It's what it's talking about here. In verse 4, you recognize that they gained their wealth from keeping back wages. It says they have kept back by fraud. And the, the actual translation of the verse here, it doesn't mean that they weren't able to pay on time, but it means they planned to never pay for work that had been done. So these wealthy men were becoming wealthy by not paying their bills and being fraudulent to those people who they owed money to. And we know that the Bible makes it very clear. The Bible says, thou shalt not steal. That's why as Christians we should be faithful to pay people that we owe and to pay our bills. Amen? Amen. And, uh, but also, if you look in verse 6, it says you, can, you have... Ye have condemned and killed the just. The idea of condemned here has to do with a courtroom. And so the point is not only are these wealthy people oppressing the poor by becoming wealthy off of them and not paying them their just fair wages, but they're also controlling the courts and condemning certain people using their influence. You know, uh, somebody said uh, had a misinterpretation of the golden rule. The golden rule is due unto others as... You would have them do unto you. But they said the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules. 
And uh, we see this, this was especially prevalent back during this time, was that the courts were significantly controlled through money and through bribes. And so people that were wealthy were able to get the right ruling in court and condemn people who weren't even guilty using their finances. So the Bible warns against securing wealth by illegal means. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 13 and uh, verse 11, Proverbs 13 and verse 11, it says, Wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished, but he that gathereth by labor shall increase. So ill-gotten wealth or wealth that has been gotten illegally is going to end up diminishing, but he that gathereth by labor does it the right way and the fair way is going to work out. And no doubt you've heard stories before. Maybe you've been personally, personally acquainted with someone who made a lot of money, but they did it by oppressing people or through illegal means. And you just watch their life. You watch from a distance, and as time passes, that wealth will diminish. Many of those people will be humiliated at a certain time because there is a biblical principle that wealth is to be gained in an appropriate fashion through uh, appropriate labor and work. Can I get an amen? And then Proverbs 23 and 4 further speaks to this matter. Proverbs 23 and 4 says, Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. It says, Labor not to be rich. So this passion or quest to just obtain riches and obtain wealth is not healthy. There are some reasons why it's not healthy, and one of them is you begin to trust in your riches. And the Bible says that these people in, in James, they were storing up wealth for the end times, for the uh, cataclysmic events that were determined or predetermined to come. They were going to trust in their wealth and trust in their riches. So the second problem was the problem with the way that they used their wealth. Verse 3, it says, you uh, have heaped treasure together for the last days. They were hoarding their money. Now, I just want to make sure that you uh, get the proper meaning here. The Bible is not condemning saving money here. But it's talking to men who have obtained wealth illegally that are hoarding it up so they can trust in it in the last days. In fact, the Bible in other places makes it clear uh, that, uh, uh, that saving money and uh, preparing for the future is wise. Remember the unprofitable servant? When he came back with the, the amount of money that he'd been given, the, the master said, you should have at least put it in the bank and gained some interest off of it. That's what it says. So it's not wrong to save, but it is wrong to hoard, especially when you owe others and when you have defrauded others. So these rich men that are being addressed in chapter 5 were hoarding stuff for their own security instead of storing up treasures in heaven. And the interesting thing is that this letter that James was writing to the church in Jerusalem, ten years after this epistle or letter was written, the city of Jerusalem was sacked by Titus. And every rich man in the city lost everything that he had. And so they were trusting some of these men in wealth and riches. And it was ill-placed trust because it was going to diminish and it was going to fade away. So 
one thing to remember is that the things that we have, whether it's our jobs, our wealth, our resources, we may possess them, but we don't own them. Because everything is owned by God. Amen? Even the money in my bank account, it is, I'm a steward of it, I'm overseeing it. But when I start to feel like it's mine, that's when I begin to trust in it. And that's when I set myself up for God's chastisement and correction. But when I understand that it's God's, and if God speaks to me with my resources to bless someone, or God speaks to me with what He has given me to help someone, and I recognize that what I have belongs to God, and I respond to that, then I have the right attitude and the right response to my possessions. Now, that doesn't mean we have to give away everything that we have. Amen? That doesn't mean we shouldn't provide things for our family and nice things for our children. But it does mean we have to be conscious and remember that everything we have belongs to God. And we're just stewards of these things. And also remember that if you find yourself trusting in treasures, trusting in finance, trusting in resource, God loves you enough to bust your bubble. Everybody say amen. Amen. Uh, verse number 5, another problem that uh, James had is that they were living in pleasure or living in luxury. And uh, there is a difference between enjoying what God has given and living extravagantly on something that's been withheld from other people. And so there is a difference. So he first addresses in chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 some men that had obtained their wealth in a corrupt manner. And he uh, speaks to them. Now, we're going to read verses 7 through 12. The examples of suffering and being patient in times of suffering. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and the latter rain. But ye also, patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against the another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Verse 10. Take, my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. And have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. <laughs> Amen. So. The, the, the essence of, of this portion of chapter 5 is that all believers must patiently trust in God and at times endure hardship and suffering. Just like some of you are enduring the fact that our air conditioning is not working today. And I apologize, we didn't find out until we got here to church. We turned it on this morning and got to church and it was hotter then, hotter when we got here than it was when we turned it on, so... We're going to have that service before Sunday. But enduring, enduring difficulty and patiently 
trusting God. The Bible makes it abundantly clear and speaks repeatedly that we should not expect heaven on earth. We must endure tribulation. I mean, you guys don't hear this very often, and a lot of churches don't talk about that, but the reality is you must endure from time to time tribulation. Now, the, in this passage, it uses the word patience several times. But it uses, there's two different Greek words that are translated patience, and they have a little bit of a different meaning. For instance, the uh, one that's uh, in, in verse 7, is, it would be translated more like long-suffering. And the one in verse 11 means to remain under. So it's translated patience, but both of these words mean a little bit of something different. And uh, so the first one has the connotation of being patient with people. And the one about remaining under meaning, meaning, means being patient through difficult conditions and situations and not running away from them. That's the idea of remaining under. And there's a lot of people who never grow spiritually because whenever the difficulty comes, they run away. They go somewhere else. Have you seen people like that before that just move from this place to that place and they wonder why they, they never are able to grow? That's uh, because they misinterpret what's happening. God is causing them to go maybe through a dry season, maybe through a difficult time, maybe through a trial. He's preparing them. He's testing them. He's conditioning them. He's giving them patience through the only way that patience can come, through testing in the meantime, they misinterpret that and they go somewhere else. And they move somewhere else. But the word here that's translated patient means to remain under in the midst of a difficult situation and in the midst of difficult conditions rather than running away. And then he gives us uh, three examples here of patient endurance. He talks about the husbandman, he talks about the prophets, and he talks about Job. We just read. Now, the, the first one he talks about is... The husbandman, verse number 7, Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. Now, just to make this easy for you, the word husbandman, replace it with the word farmer. Because that's what it means. The farmer waiteth for the crops and has long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. He is waiting. Everybody say precious. The precious fruit from the seed that's been planted. So the idea here is he's given a comparison of a farmer to let us know that uh, we as spiritual farmers are looking for a spiritual harvest. But we have to be patient. Because just like the farmer, you can't be a farmer and lack patience. Because crops don't grow overnight. Regardless of the story of uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, where overnight the stock went up to the heavens and he came out and it grew just overnight. Well, real crops take time. Amen? And uh, you have to wait and you have to be patient. And so the Lord is saying, just like the farmer is patient waiting for the harvest, you have to be patient as well waiting for the harvest of the seeds that have been planted because what has been planted is precious and it's not going to happen overnight. You have to be patient. And some of you are dealing with people and 
loving people and praying for people and you're not seeing any advancement yet. But I'm encouraging you to be patient because the Bible says in due season ye shall reap if you faint not. So keep praying for your husband and keep praying for your wife and keep praying for that unsaved loved one and keep reaching out to those people that seem to be rigid and uh, resistant to what you're telling them because uh, there is going to be a harvest and the seed is precious and the fruit that's going to be produced is precious. Everybody say precious. So you have to be patient because as a farmer you recognize it doesn't happen overnight and also you recognize that you cannot control the weather. You can't determine there's not going to be a frost. Or you can't lock up the heavens so it doesn't rain or release the heavens so the heavens do rain. As a natural farmer, you have to be patient and wait. But while you're waiting, you work. You do what you can. You pull the weeds and you take care of the crop because it's precious seed. Verse number 8, it says... "Be." You, you be patient also like the farmer. Establish your hearts. Everybody say, establish your hearts. And that is the purpose of the local church here, is that when people are new believers and they're starting out as Christians, they have got to be established. And this happens through word, the Word of God. This happens through prayer. People have to be established and they have to grow up. And, and uh, this doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a long period of time. But you've got to have the right goal, that being to establish your heart. And then verse 9, grudge ye not one against another, brethren. In other words, don't fight with one another. And here's the deal. It says, uh, lest you be condemned. Sometime when people get impatient with their situation, they grow impatient with each other. And it causes them to fight. It causes strife. One against another, brother against sister, brother against brother in the church. And so be patient. Don't fight. Don't get a bad spirit. Be patient. In due season, you will reap if you don't faint. So the second example he gives in verse 10 is he says, take my brethren, the prophets. Everybody say the prophets. These are Old Testament prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They're an example of suffering affliction and of patience. So the Old Testament prophets are examples to us of victory through persecution. The prophets were in the will of God. These men like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, they were doing the right thing and they were suffering at the same time. Some people have gotten the misconception that if you're in the will of God, that you're not going to be suffering. So if you're suffering, you must be out of the will of God. He says, brethren, consider the Old Testament prophets who suffered affliction while in the will of God. Satan tries to convince people that they're being persecuted because of their unfaithfulness. And it may very well be that they're being persecuted because of their faithfulness. Obedience to God is the right way, but it doesn't ensure ease and pleasure. Well, if I obey God's will, everything's going to be easy street. That's not the case. Jesus obeyed the will of God, and it led Him to the cross. Amen. So don't get it twisted. Don't let these things confuse you, and then the devil use it against you because you're going through a trial, because you're being persecuted, because you're facing difficulty. You may be experiencing what the prophets experience, and that is that through their suffering, 
A message was being declared. So the farmers kept working, even in difficult situations. And the prophets kept witnessing, no matter what happened, no matter how trying their situation became, they kept doing what they were doing in the midst of their circumstances. Everybody say amen. The third example that he gives us of remaining patient in the middle of suffering is the example of Job, verses 11 and 12. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Everybody say endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. You heard the story of Job and you heard the end of the story and see how God's mercy brought him through. But above all things... Above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven or earth, oath, that your yea be yea and your nay be nay. In verse number 11, he says, talks about blessing, the blessing that comes in perseverance. Guess what? The blessing that comes in perseverance, those that are happy because they endure, can't get happy until they go through the trial. This blessing of endurance only comes through trials. There is a blessing of endurance. Some people have never experienced yet because they haven't gone through the fire. They haven't been hurt. They haven't felt rejection. They haven't prayed and seen the prayers not answered. Come on now. They haven't asked God to deliver them and God didn't immediately deliver them. They haven't been through it yet. But those of you that have been through the trial, you know the happiness that comes with endurance. I made it through. I came out on the other side. I I proved the Scripture. This too shall pass. Amen. And so what God does is He balances the blessings and the burdens in our life. And so if you're living in a time of blessing, thank God for it. Sing songs. Rejoice. But don't be shocked when you go through a time of burden because God balances blessings with burdens for us so that we don't become spoiled, pampered, and useless. Is there anybody else in the house that knows that it's true that sometimes you pray better when you're going through a trial? And your prayers become just arbitrary, functional, dry when things are going good. Your thanksgiving might be spunky and excited, but if things stay good, after a while you just take it for granted. But you go through a trial and you get back down to business and you fall back in love with Jesus and you recognize your need of Him. So thank God that He balances our blessings with burdens because He's more concerned about us making it to heaven. He's more concerned about our our character being developed in the meantime than He is about our comfort. Anybody understand what I'm saying? God is more concerned with your character than He is with your comfort. And I read something today. It's very interesting. He said, any advancement that causes you, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was along these lines, any kind of opportunity or an advancement that causes you to go against your values, your convictions, and your integrity is not an opportunity. Because integrity is your goal. So if integrity is your purpose and your goal, if the development of character is your real goal in life, any seeming advancement 
that causes you to compromise your character is not an advancement. It's a step backward. Amen? So understand that the objective or the goal of my life is my character. So sometimes the most difficult things in my life are the very things that are helping me accomplish my goal or God's goal for me. To become like Jesus Christ. I can't become like Jesus Christ until I've been rejected a time or two. I can't really become like Jesus Christ until a close friend betrays me. You know what I'm saying? You've got to go through some things to be like Jesus. You've got to go through some trials and some difficulties and face some pain in your life to become like Jesus. But the purpose is the development of your character. So thank God for that balance. I don't want to become spoiled and pampered. But I want God to use me. And one thing to remember about Job is we read the story of Job and we know what's happening behind the scenes. We know that God was bragging about Job to Satan. And Satan said, lift the hedge, let me test him. God says, okay. Job doesn't know any of the story of the backstory. We know it. But yet in the midst of that, he is patient through this time of horrific testing, worse than any of us have ever experienced. Can I say amen? By his close friends, he was accused of being a sinner and a hypocrite. Look what you're going through. Look at these difficulties. Obviously, God is not with you. Obviously, you've sinned. You need to repent and make it right. He said, no, I'm not perfect, but I haven't sinned. I haven't done what you are accusing me of doing. He experienced and endured great suffering. See, the Hebrew people during the times of Jesus thought that wealth always represented God's blessing. So they were confused when Jesus said, it's hard for a wealthy man to enter into heaven. Remember when Jesus said that? They said, well, who then can be saved? The reason they said that is they thought that the wealthy people were obviously... Sometimes wealth can be a blessing from God, but you can't automatically assume that just because somebody's rolling in the dough, just because times are good, just because they got nice clothes and a fancy car and a beautiful home, that that is representative of the blessings of God. Amen. And I uh, know of a, a, a friend of mine that I, I grew up around. I remember him rolling in the cash, man. He was fat catnip. Nice clothes, all kinds of nice stuff. Just everything was wonderful. And I asked him, hey, what do you do for a living? He was very vague about it. And I just found out that that same friend who was working part-time as a youth pastor in a church and doing this business on the side and rolling in the dough, whether he knew it or not, he was involved in embezzlement, and he is in prison now. He was doing some offshore business. And uh, so... The point is you can't always just assume that because someone appears to be blessed that they are blessed or that someone appears to be oppressed that they have sinned and failed God. Amen? God may be creating character in them. The story of Job definitely proves that point. But some things to remember about the story of Job that when you find yourself in the fire, remember from the story of Job that God's hand controlled the thermostat. It's only going to get as hot as He'll allow it to get. And He has the power. See, everything that Satan tempted Job with, or every oppression that he came against Job with, he had to get a permission slip from God first. 
So God wasn't going to put on him more than he could bear. So remember that through your trial. Remember that through your difficulty. Remember that through your stress. No, God's not oppressing you, but God won't allow anything that's going to destroy you. He won't allow anything that ultimately won't make you better if you keep the right attitude and the right spirit. Amen? So if you find yourself in the furnace, if you're going through the stress right now and you're like, man, I don't know how it can get any worse. I don't know if I can endure. I want you to go to God and ask Him for strength to endure. Because the next portion we're going to talk about is about praying in the midst of the trial. And verse 12 talks about, above all things, swear not. And it seems like kind of random put in here. But notice that Job refused to curse God in the middle of his trial. He didn't speak against God. His wife said, curse God and die. He cursed the day he was born, but he did not curse God. Two true Christians don't have to use oaths. It says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. You don't have to use a lot of words and try to convince somebody. If you're a Christian, your character speaks for itself. They say it this way, he's a man of his word. She's a lady of her word. If she says she's going to do it, she's going to do it. So the necessity of the requirement of oaths and so forth displays a lack of spiritual maturity. Just like Peter, he used oaths when the woman accused him of being a follower of Jesus Christ. He cursed and used oaths. I, never, I swear, I never knew him. I never saw him. It was because he was spiritually immature. He wasn't developed yet. There was still work to be done. And the sign of spiritual maturity is that your word is your word. And you don't have to butter it up with all kinds of oaths and swearing and much language. Everybody say amen. So let us pray. Verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. Somebody say amen. amen. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Notice this here. There are, now God doesn't call us to be the judge of these things, but there are instances where sin can produce sickness. And first of all, confession and forgiveness has to be requested, then healing comes. Amen? Amen. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was just like us. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, or wander from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sin. The power, the power of prayer. In this little section that we just read, James mentions prayer seven times. Seven times is prayer mentioned. And throughout the book of James, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 5, many, many mentions, references to the use of the tongue, whether for evil or for good. The tongue uh, with gossip and slander can be a fire. 
But the tongue can also give praise and worship to God. And here he talks about the power in prayer. And the high, high holy use of the tongue is to use it in prayer. Everybody say praise the Lord. The mature believer is prayerful in times of trouble. The mature believer, rather than getting angry and fighting and accusing and complaining and grumping, what do they do? The mature believer learns to be prayerful in trials and prayerful in trouble. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. You know, I know sometimes we talk about and gripe about and complain about our troubles so much. Guess what it does? It makes it worse. It makes it worse for us. And then, if you're not careful, you notice people are avoiding you. <laughs> Why are they avoiding me? Do they have something against me? Maybe they don't want to hear your spew of negativity or complaining. Amen. But when you pray, it makes a difference in the positive. Thank God for the power of prayer. That prayer really makes a difference. And a mark of spiritual maturity is someone who has learned to, instead of taking all these other avenues of expressing themselves or letting off steam in times of trouble, they pray in times of trouble. They talk to God. And there are four situations here that are mentioned of answered prayer. The first one in verse 13. It's about those that are afflicted. Those that are suffering. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. The word afflicted means suffering in difficult circumstances. And there are times in all of our lives where we will find ourselves suffering because of a set of particular circumstances. And the Bible says if you are in a place like that, Maybe physically you're suffering. Maybe emotionally you're suffering because of the circumstances. The Bible says, let him pray. If you're afflicted, if you're going through difficult situations, pray. And there are difficult situations that are neither the result of sin or of God's chastening. You just must endure them and you learn to endure through prayer. Because the same prayer that can remove affliction can be the same prayer that gives you grace to endure the affliction and accomplish God's will through the affliction. Remember, brothers and sisters, God doesn't waste a pain. And so if I'm afflicted, if I'm going through difficult situations, if I learn to pray through them, then God's will and purpose can be done in the midst of my trial. I gotta endure. I gotta stay faithful. I gotta stay plugged in in the midst of this difficult trial. So I know that prayer has the ability to bring me out of my situation, but sometimes it's prayer that I need to hold on through the situation. Amen. To make it through the difficulty. And we know that, uh, remember, uh, I think I'm getting ahead of myself here, but. Jesus prayed three times, remove this cup from me. And Paul prayed three different occasions, remove this thorn from my flesh. But the answer from the heavens was not to remove, but to give them grace and strength to endure. Because God's perfect will was being done. 
That's why Jesus, speaking as a man, said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And we pray out of our will sometimes, and we get mad because God doesn't answer. But we need to learn to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done in my life. And God, if you can take this away from me, take it away. No problem with praying like that. Jesus did it. Paul did it. You can do it. And maybe God's grace will take it away. Maybe the time's right for the trial to come to an end. Because storms don't last forever. Trials don't last forever. There is an end that's coming. But you can pray, God, right in the midst of this pain, right in the midst of this heartache, right in the midst of this difficulty, let it accomplish its purpose in me. Give me patience. Give me endurance. Cause me to be a better Christian. Cause me to be more like you. Teach me to treat people the right way through this difficulty. You ever had somebody come into your life that is an irritant? Yeah. All of us have had people in our lives that are irritants. I remember one time as a young person, I had to serve in ministry with a person who, I mean, and I, 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 I'm like a little bit of a social chameleon. I can get along with anybody, kind of connect with anybody. But this person, this person of the female persuasion got on my nerves so bad. And I, I couldn't stand being around her. And I remember saying, complaining about it to my pastor. And my pastor said, well, it's going to be a grace builder in your life. And I was like, that sounds pretty, but what in the world are you talking about? But the point is, is by enduring that, <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, as a pastor, there's a lot of things I could never deal with if I never learned how to deal with irritating personalities. If I didn't have to go through it and deal with it. But by doing that, God was preparing me. But if I said, God, just take this out of my life, take this person out of my life, what does it do? Its purpose is not accomplished. Even if God answers my prayer, if my prayer is against His will and He were to answer it, then His purpose would not be accomplished. Whether it's a situation or a person or an irritant, it may be there to perfect you and prepare you for something. Because we all know the story that it's the, the, the grain of sand that's an irritant that becomes a pearl within an oyster. And the very greatest things in your life may come from the irritations that you would pray for God to remove them from you. But if God obeyed your will, rather than letting His will be accomplished, there would be no pearl at the end. So I want to encourage somebody. You're going through a trial. You're facing some difficulty. You may be mistreated. You may feel bad. You may feel beat down. But I want to tell you right now, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Is any afflicted? Let him pray. Pray that God will give you the strength and the power to endure. And in the end, you're going to be a better for the person for it. God's going to give you a double for your trouble. God's going to take something ugly and make it beautiful. That's the kind of God that we serve. Somebody praise Him right now if you know that I'm telling telling you the truth and if God's speaking a word to you right now Paul and Jesus said remove God instead gave them grace to go through it is there any afflicted let him pray is there any Mary it says let him sing songs let him sing and once again, we see this balance in our life of suffering and singing. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the valley is followed by a mountaintop? 
aren't you glad that there's a little texture to life? That there's a little cadence and up and down to life? Because if things were good all the time, then you wouldn't realize how good they are. Let me just give you an example. And there have been times in my life because of travels or where I am, I'm eating at restaurants continually. Fine restaurants, nice restaurants. And I finally reach a point, maybe some of you can relate to this, where it's like, I don't care, man. I don't even want to eat at a restaurant. Oh, but this is a $30 a plate place. And, man, it is designed just to please and satisfy your palate. It's perfect. And, uh, and it's just like after a while, it's like, I, I, I don't even want to eat. I just want to move away from that. Uh, and uh, uh, the reality is, is maybe I've been eating beans and cornbread for a while. Then I get to go to a nice restaurant and it's like, bring it on and I'm ready for it now because of the contour of life. And God balances our suffering with singing. Amen. He balances our times of difficulty with times of rejoicing. Amen. And get, let, me, let me share with you a sign of a mature Christian. A mature Christian is one who learns to sing while they're suffering. Amen? Hallelujah. Like Paul and Silas, uh, who were beaten and bleeding, sitting in a pool of their own blood in a filthy jail cell. And what are they doing at midnight? They're singing praises to the Lord. Hallelujah. Singing, I'm so glad that the Lord saved me. He changed me. He made me new. He made me over again. Amen. Some of us like to rejoice and sing when things are good. But a sign of somebody growing and maturing spiritually is somebody that can sing in the midst of the trial. Hallelujah. You know, Brother Chet, some people never get this. Some people have been around church or going to church or part of church for many, many years. But you, I can tell what they're going through based on their appearance, based on the way that they worship God. Oh, they must be going through a downtime now, I can tell. Yeah. Oh, man, things must be good now. Woo, look at them. They got their hallelujah shoes on today. Oh, they must have had a fight at home today because look at that. Look at that praise and worship. Look where it went to. It just went in the tank. But then there's the spiritually mature people who say, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And I'm going to praise Him in the hard times. I'm going to sing in the difficult times. I'm going to pray, but I'm going to sing through the midst of my trial. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And what I, I found is that when you learn to sing in the midst of the trial, a lot of times it makes it shorter. Or at least it seems shorter, even if it's not shorter. Praise God. Hallelujah. So praying and singing, we see here, are important elements of the church. And just like they were in the church in Jerusalem that James was writing to, I believe that uh, praying and singing continues to be an important part of our church. But But it's also very, very important that our prayer and our singing not just be vain, empty, repetitious words. Just like we're warned against in prayer, vain repetitions. What does that mean? That means when you're praying, don't just speak words that have no heart or understanding with it. It's just rote or by memory or routine. The same is true with our singing. When we sing songs to the Lord, even if you know the song by heart, 
Go ahead and put some heart into it. Go ahead and sing from your heart. Amen. Because it's effective and it makes a difference when it's done with sincerity and from the heart. Amen. And then verse 14, 14 through 16, it talks about prayer for the sick. Any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. And, and we noticed and we mentioned here that there can be connections between some sickness and sin. And uh, when that is the case, confess your sins one to another. No, you don't have to go to a confessional booth in a church. Talk to a priest. Confess your sins one to another. And then pray. And then anticipate and expect the healing. Let me just give you a little word here. When you're confessing your sins, you don't have to confess it to everybody. You don't have to confess it to people it didn't affect. Amen? You confess it to people that affected that, that were affected by it and ask for forgiveness. Because sometimes confession can do more harm to the body than good if it's done publicly. Amen? So confess your sins one to another doesn't mean have a public forum where everybody says, Well, this week, boy, I've really been struggling with some lust and uh, wanted to tell you guys all about it. And you know what happened Thursday. Uh, no, there's no need for that. Confess your sins one to another in a private setting, a private uh, type of deal. Pray together and, and believe that God will heal. In verse number 15, it says that faith, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. It is the prayer of faith that is the source of the healing power. Amen. And, and there is obviously this question. People read this verse and they, they say, does this mean that, uh, that every person in the body that's sick, when we pray the prayer of faith, that they should be healed, that every person should be healed, or and 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 it becomes nebulous or difficult here because people take two extremes. They take the one extreme, which is they believe that uh, everybody should be healed, and if a person doesn't get healed, then they must have something wrong with their faith. And then you have the other extreme, which is you know God is sovereign, and if He wants a person to be healed, then they'll be healed. So these are two extremes, and the truth is in the middle. The truth is, there is a sickness unto death. And if somebody has an appointment with God, we can pray and fast till our belly buttons fall off. And that appointment is still going to be met. But at the same time, there is sickness, there is pain, that it is God's will. That's the thing. God is sovereign. You have to remember that God is sovereign. And God can touch and heal that person when you pray the prayer of faith. So what do we do? We try to discern, you know, like get out our divining rod and try to figure out, is this person God's plan to be healed or God's plan not to be healed? Let's just operate in faith and pray the prayer of faith and receive a word from God. I've found oftentimes that when I am truly praying the prayer of faith, I'll get a witness from the Holy Spirit. And then I can speak a word. I can say, God's going to heal you. God's going to touch you. God's going to deliver you. It's the prayer of faith. I remember one time when we were, Sister, uh, Lydia's house and Rebecca had been suffering from migraine headaches. And right in the middle of our Bible study, I got a word of faith for this young lady. And the word was, that's your last migraine headache if you'll receive and accept what God has for you. We felt the witness of the Holy Spirit. We prayed for her. And then she was freed and delivered from that sickness, from that spirit of infirmity. Amen. Praise God. And so the prayer of faith shall save the sick and they shall recover. Somebody say amen. amen. Hallelujah. And so rather than trying to 
figure all this out about the balance between God's sovereignty and, and faith healing, call for the elders of the church and say, I believe for a miracle. You don't have to call for a faith healer. It doesn't say call for brother so-and-so and, -so and uh, he'll come with his magic potion and his magic breath and breathe on you and something supernatural, exciting is going to happen. That's worshiping, and glorifying a human being. And God says, I'm not going to share my glory with anybody else. He says, call the elders of the church. Let them anoint with oil and pray the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. Guess what? The gift of faith ought to be operating in this church. It is. Amen. If there's people praying, there's people fasting, there's people in the Word of God, connected to the Word of God, then the gift of faith will be an operation within the church. And pastor doesn't even have to be there. Assistant doesn't have to be there. Or the evangelist doesn't have to be there. Call for the elders of the church. Call for men of God, ladies of God. Say, lay hands on me. Pray, pray the prayer of faith. And I believe that I'm going to recover. Whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Amen. And then verse 17. It says, Elijah, Elias, which is Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. It means he was a human being just like all of us. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not. Then he prayed again. And the heavens gave rain. And the earth brought forth her fruit. So it's talking here, first of all, about prayer for the nations. Prayer for... Not just yourself, not just your church, but bigger, bigger prayers. Prayers for your community. Prayers for your nation. And uh, verse 16, jumping back a little bit, it said, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That means somebody who it, whose prayer is effective and fervent. It brings about much. So you have three elements back there in verse 16 about getting prayers answered is effectual, fervent, and righteous. Effectual, fervent, righteous. Notice it says righteous. It doesn't say perfect. But it says righteous. Amen. And I'm so glad I've got the Lord's righteousness, not my own righteousness. Amen. But I'm living in the power of salvation and I'm living in victory over sin because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So effectual, fervent, and righteous. What does effectual mean? Well, to me, the word effectual means that it's somebody who is praying in faith. They're praying, believing while they're praying. Amen? Because the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. It says if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Nothing wavering. He that wavereth is like uh, the, the waves that are tossed by the wind. He said let that person expect to receive nothing from God. Let him ask in faith. If you ask in faith, you can expect it. That's what makes your prayers effectual. All right? Effectual prayer is prayer that's prayed with faith. Believing God. Believing God. That's why I love a good, good, good old testimony. When somebody has a word of God working a miracle or coming through for him. 
Somebody said it makes the bones fat. Good report makes you feel good. It gives you faith in your spirit. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. If you're in the Word, if you're coming to church, your faith should be challenged and strengthened. And by the testimony of your brothers and sisters, your faith should be challenged and lifted up and strengthened so that when you pray, you're not just repeating phrases and you're not just talking to a wall or to a ceiling, but your prayer becomes effective, effectual. It becomes powerful. It becomes useful. It becomes able to do something that makes a difference. And then fervent. I like the word fervent. That has to do with intensity and, 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 and with passion and heart. Putting some heart into it. So if you're praying with faith and you're praying with passion and with heart, and you're a man that's living in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, living in victory over sin, you can pray and see things happen. Come on, somebody. You can see things happen. But Elijah was a prophet. Elijah was this great, special, set-apart man. James said, no, he was a man of like passions just like you are. Elijah was a man like you and me. But he was righteous and he had effectual, fervent prayer and stuff happened. He said, stop the rain. The rain stopped. He prayed and said, start the rain up again. And the rain started up and the land was healed and it brought forth fruit. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I want to tell you that your prayer makes a difference. Somebody listen to me. Your prayer makes a difference. I want you to pray with faith. I want you to pray believing. And you know, when... when this is another thing that uh, I've found as you become more consistent in your prayer. There's a tendency to begin to fight the battle of the blahs. Where you just kind of feel like your prayer get a little, bit, a little bit dry, a little bit routine. And you're just kind of praying through your prayer list. I want to encourage you. Listen to a sermon about t- uh, faith. Get a CD or a tape. Listen to Brother Stone King. Listen to somebody that will encourage your faith. And, and then when you go and you bring your request to the Lord, don't just write off the list, but pray in faith. Pray believing that something is going to happen. Something is going to happen. I was just with a, a young man, and uh, I had seen him in January, and then uh, I saw him again uh, just last month in June. I hadn't seen him from January to June. January was a picture of health. When I saw him in June, I almost didn't recognize him. Uh, his much of his hair was missing. He was gaunt. His coloring and complexion was just not good. And uh, uh, I found out that uh, the doctors felt like he had lupus and this disease was coming against him. And I remember feeling prompted by the Lord to tell this young man that I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to pray for you every day. I'm going to pray for you repeatedly. I'm going to pray for you continuously. Every time I pray, I'm going to pray for you. And, uh, and he said, man, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And you know what? When I'm, I, I was praying the other day for him what, during my prayer time, and I felt a witness from the Holy Ghost. And the witness from the Holy Ghost was this. He's going to come through this, and, and he's going to be touched, and he's going to be healed. But, when he, but there's a, a purpose that I'm, I'm taking him through this trial. When he comes through it, he's going to be better than he ever was before. Amen? And see, it's praying in faith. So now when I pray, I already know the answer's coming. I don't have to beg for it anymore. I already know the answer's coming, but I'm going to say, God, you're going to touch. And I'm, I'm excited in faith for what you're going to do. In my brother's life. Amen. Hallelujah. So effectual and fervent prayer. Verse 17 mentions Elijah. When you look at the story of Elijah, he, when he was praying for the rain to come back, prayed seven times. Not just once. He prayed. Then he sent his servant. Do you see any clouds? Nope. 
We pray again, prayed again, prayed again. Go, go check, see if there are any clouds. No clouds. He kept on praying. He kept on praying. And in seven times, he says, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. He said, well, you better get ready to run because I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. And there was a great rain that fell and the nation was saved from poverty and nation was saved from famine and the earth began to give forth fruit. And Elijah was a man just like us. He wasn't perfect, but he was a righteous man. And uh, the Word of God gives us promises that we can pray. Get into the Word of God and pray the promises of God and believe in faith for big things. I wonder if there are some people like Elijah that can pray for big things and believe God for big things. Amen. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I can trust God for big things. I can believe God. You're like, well, how can I know that my prayers are in sync with the will of God? Well, get your prayers in sync with the will of God. Here's one idea. The Bible says it's not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you pray in faith for revival, I promise you, you're in the will of God. If you pray in faith for a harvest of souls, I promise you, you're in the will of God. If you pray in faith that God would use you to be a soul winner, I promise you, you are in the will of God. And God will answer prayer and God will use you. Amen? Any prayer that's about furthering the kingdom and moving the kingdom forward is in sync with the will of God. And the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Uh, Keep praying. And then look out. Do I see it yet? No. But I'm not discouraged. I'm going to go pray again. Amen. And then go, well, I don't see it yet, but I'm going to pray again. Hallelujah. And he prayed earnestly. Verse 17. He prayed earnestly. You know what the actual... Literal translation of that in the Greek is that's translated, he prayed earnestly. It says, he prayed when he prayed. <laughs> so what in the world does that mean? He prayed. While he, when he was praying, he was actually praying. Which means he wasn't just going through the routine. And he wasn't just saying words. He prayed earnestly. His heart was engaged. He was thinking about what he was saying. Amen. And I want to encourage you in your prayers to pray earnestly. Pray when you pray. You know sometimes you're praying, but you're not praying. You're at prayer, but you're not praying. Words are coming out of your mouth, but you're not praying. But you know when you're praying when you're praying. And that's when you're praying earnestly. Amen. Elijah prayed earnestly and God answered his prayer. Prayer power is the greatest power in the world today. Amen. It's greater than TNT and greater than dynamite, greater than gunpowder, greater than nuclear energy, greater than atomic energy. The most powerful thing in the world today is the power of prayer. And I want to tell you that God's put in your finger at your fingertips uh, something that avails much, uh, something that gives you power. Come on. Is there anybody that believes the word of God today? I want to shake you out of your lethargy. I want you to realize that when you pray, you are praying with power. And prayer makes a difference. And prayer causes things to happen. So I'm challenging someone who gave up. Someone who quit praying. Someone who gave up on their dream. And someone who gave up on their heartbeat. I'm asking you, get in prayer again. This time pray with faith. Pray believing. Pray with expectancy. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Go out and look for the cloud. You see a cloud yet? 
Nope, not yet. But I'm going to go pray again. Because one of these times, you're going to go out and you're going to see a little tiny cloud. Just a little bit of evidence. And you say, you better strap your boots on. It's time to roll because God's about to answer my prayer. Here it comes right now. Here comes the answer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. Pray for your city. Pray for your nation. Pray for your home. Pray for your family. Pray for your unsaved loved ones. Pray for your kids. Pray for your brothers and your sisters. Pray for your mom and dad. God answers prayer. Hallelujah. The final thing we notice in verse 19 and 20 is that we are to pray for those that are straying away from God. It doesn't directly say that we are to pray, but obviously it's implied that we must pray for our brother who wanders from truth. It says, uh, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his ways. Or, or verse 19. If any of you do err from the truth. And one convert. So err means to wander. To stray from truth. And to get into sin. The, the, the language here in, in the original the connotation is like a gradual decline. Like a backsliding. Someone moving away from truth. A gradual truth. And. A decline. And when a person errs or wanders in this way, it's dangerous to them because they put themselves in line with God's chastisement. And the Bible talks in John about the sin unto death that sometimes God's judgment comes. God will not always strive with man. It's nothing to trifle with, my brothers and sisters. And so when one is erring from truth or one is wandering from the Word of God, wandering from truth, then it becomes the responsibility of those that are mature believers to do everything they can to convert such an one and to bring them back and to turn them around. Spiritual members must step in and help those that are wandering astray. Because the word here, truth, when it says uh, to wander from the truth or to err from the truth, it's talking about the Word of God. His Word is truth. And it's dangerous when we drift away from truth. Amen? Amen? It's dangerous. In Hebrews chapter number 2 and uh, verse number 1, Hebrews 2 and 1, it says, Therefore we ought to give the more honest or earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. One of the other translations says, lest at any time we drift away from the Word. Drift away from the truth. So we are to do something when a fellow believer wanders from the truth. Let me just pause and say a person who is wandering from the truth is a person who is gradually becoming disconnected from the Word of God. A person who loses his or her appetite for the Word of God. They're not interested in hearing the preaching anymore. They're not interested in their daily Bible reading anymore. And they begin to wander or drift or slip from their passion from the truth. I'm going to tell you, the Word of God will keep you plugged in. The Word of God will keep you on the straight and narrow in the right direction if you are doers of the Word. Rather than just hearers 
or readers of the Word. So what do we do when a fellow believer begins to wander or drift from the Word of God for truth? Now, obviously, we need to pray for them, but we also need to seek to help such an one. The person needs to be converted. And you may say, well, they're already converted. They're, they were in the church. They received the Holy Ghost. They were baptized. But the Bible says when they err from truth, that means when they begin to slip or wander away from the Word of God, somebody needs to convert them. And uh, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has desired you that he may sift you as wheat. I pray for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, you'll help the church. Peter's like, converted? I'm sure he's thinking, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But what? even when you're a believer, there are times when you have to be converted. Amen? Anybody understand what I'm saying? We've got to win the lost, but we also got to win the saved. Praise the Lord. And... Uh, we can only help an erring brother or a wandering brother with an attitude of love. You cannot help an, an erring brother with an attitude of arrogance or judgmentalism. Only in love can you help them. And, of course, it says that, uh, that he which can convert the sinner of his, error of his way shall save a soul from hell and shall hide a multitude of sins. In another place, the Bible says that love covereth sins. It doesn't mean that they're swept under the rug because of love. But what it means is once these sins are repented of and forgiven and covered, they're remembered no more because of love. Amen. So that means when love is reigning in a church, that someone can be an error. Someone can sin. Someone can make a mistake. And because of love in the body of Christ, once it is forgiven, it is forgotten and put under the blood. Love covereth a multitude of sins. That's not talking about sweeping it under the rug and not dealing with it. It's talking about when it's dealt with, it's not held against the person any longer because of love. Can somebody say amen? I think everybody needs to say amen on that one. Thank you, Lord. And, and not only sinners, but uh, not only saints of God, but also lost sinners need to be restored too. We need to be catching fish. We need to be converting people, bringing them into the body of Christ. So I'm praying that uh, through this study of the Word of God, this study of the book of James, that at least you've begun to understand that some things about me, if I'm going to be spiritually mature, need, these things need to start showing up in me. Rather than turning, getting uh, sir crazy like Jojo the monkey boy when trials come, that I learn to be patient in trials, knowing this, that that the trial of my faith worketh patience. So something good's happening and, and God's doing something. And, and also I learned not to just be a hearer of the Word, but I learned to put it into practice like chapter 2 says. And like chapter 3 says, I learned to control my tongue and not light fires that uh, are going to burn long after I've asked for forgiveness and uh, not slander and gossip. And uh, like in chapter 4, uh, uh, we're going to learn to be peacemakers instead of troublemakers in, in the body of Christ. And, and we, we find that we, we uh, discover true peace with one another when we first of all get at peace with ourselves. And that has to start by coming to, to to terms with the fact that I've got to get at peace with God. I can't be an enemy of God. And, and if, I'm a, if I'm in love with the world, if I'm in love with uh, 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 the things of the flesh, if I'm in, uh, listening to the bidding or submitted to the enemy, then I cannot be a friend of God. I'm enmity with God. But when I get things right with God, then I can get things right with me, and then I can be a peacemaker in the body of Christ. Uh, and when I get rid of covetousness. And finally, to be prayerful. 
through the testing, through the trial, to be patient and to pray and believe that prayer makes a difference. Praise God. Let's stand to our feet right now. Hallelujah. Let's thank God for His Word. Can we put our hands together and just thank God for His Word right now? Now let's lift up our hands as a surrender to Him, a sign of surrender. Lord Jesus, we want Your purpose and will to be done in our lives, Lord God. I want every part of me to be surrendered to You, Lord Jesus, and put under the blood, Lord, and submitted to Your Word. And I pray today, Lord Jesus, that You would help me put Your Word into practice. Don't let me just be some dry student of Your Word, but I pray, Lord God, let me put this Word into practice. Let me pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in Your sight. Uh, let me move away, Lord God, from uh, tendencies and habits, Lord Jesus, of uh, uh, speaking negative, Lord God, and let me speak the truth in love. Uh, I pray in the name of Jesus, give me patience through my trials, Lord God. Let me understand, Lord Jesus, uh, that I'm not going through a trial necessarily because I failed you, but maybe Jesus, you're just perfecting me and building patience in me and let me worship and praise you right in the middle of it, Lord God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And if somebody's going through a trial right now, Lord, I pray that they would recognize that the irritant can become a blessing ultimately, Lord Jesus. And the source of frustration can be a, a source of spiritual growth, Lord God, if they put their hope in you and their trust in you. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. We surrender to your plan. We surrender to your sovereignty and your purpose, Lord God. And we believe with great faith for revival in Pasadena, for revival, Lord God, in the San Gabriel Valley, the sister cities of Pasadena, and the Los Angeles Basin in Southern California. In the name of Jesus, we pray for our region. Bless it and baptize it with Holy Spirit revival, miracles and supernatural demonstrations. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let's greet one another in the name of Jesus.